see here. All right. Good evening, church. Glad you're with me tonight. I love preaching to the Sunday night crowd. You guys are scholars, so I don't have to hold back. <laughs> so get your uh, seatbelts on. Gonna take a little drive to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. And um, don't put my PowerPoint up yet. <laughs> I assume it'll go when I click. All right. Luke 16. And this is where Toby said you guys were at, is the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Let's see. I don't know if you've covered all of Luke 16, but I asked him if I could cover the story of the rich man and Lazarus, and he said I could, so I thought that sounded fun. So Luke 16, I think we ought to start out by reading it, and then we'll go back and we'll talk a little bit about literary stuff. Um, Contextual stuff, ancient cosmology is going to be the big topic tonight, and then at the end, uh, maybe a little bit of application, hopefully. We'll see how far we get. So Luke 16, starting in verse 19, the rich man and Lazarus. Here's what it says. I'll be reading from the New American Standard. It says, Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. A poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here. You are in agony. Besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. So the big question that people like to ask about this story is, is it a parable? Is it a parable or is it biographical? So we'll get to that question in a second, but actually I'd like to back up to chapter 14. And in chapter 14, you have really the first uh, teaching about the resurrection. Someone has been resurrected in the book of Luke. It was back in chapter 7, the widow's son at the town of Nain. 
But back in chapter 14 is really when this train of thought gets started. And we're going to see that we have parable after parable after parable. And first is the parable of the guest, because Jesus himself is a guest at one of the Pharisees' house. And uh, he was watching them closely, and there's questions about whether you can heal on the Sabbath or not. So he heals a man uh, who was ill, and then to teach them about where they're wrong, where they need to correct their thinking, he tells them the parable of the guests. And in the parable of the guests, he mentions how the lesson of the parable is that you should do good now, invite the poor, invite the crippled, invite the lame, invite the blind, that's verse 13, and you will be blessed since they do not have means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. This is actually the first spot in Luke where he actually does like teaching specifically about the resurrection. And so since we are going to look at the rich man and Lazarus, we'll see that the rich man, he wanted Lazarus to be resurrected, to be sent back to warn his family. And so that thought actually begins way back here. We have the parable of the guests, and then you have the parable of the dinner. Of the dinner. And one thing to keep in mind, in fact, I don't know uh, who is a part of the focus class. Who's the part of the focus class? If you were there this morning... Um, there was a comment by uh, Brenda Heller that was actually uh, right on the money. She said that in this day and time, especially the rich elite Jews, the Pharisees, Sadducees, um, the view which they had about how God deals with people and with the world was very fatalistic. Do you know what I mean by fatalistic? That basically their fate was already written and sealed. So that if you were rich, then that was your fate to be rich. Like that's what God wanted you to be which was nice to hear if you were the rich ruling class elite among the Pharisees. <laughs> but if you were poor or crippled or blind, uh, then that was actually your fate. Like God had fated you to do that. And uh, that is not true. And in fact, it's so not true that that's basically the main theme throughout all of these parables is the idea of what I'm going to call divine reversal. And I'll mention that uh, several times over. But if you remember in Luke 14, verse 13, he said, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. And then if you jump to verse 21, where he talks about the parable of the dinner, he said, the slave came back, reported this to his master. The head of the household became angry that nobody would come, that he invited him. So he said, go out at once into the streets and lanes of the city. Bring in here the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. So again, this idea of divine reversal, where those who the elite would have thought were fated to be blind and crippled and poor, uh, by the way, Jesus just reversed the fate of one of those people, right? In the beginning of chapter 14, there was a man who had dropsy. He was suffering, and it says that Jesus healed him in front of all the Pharisees. So basically, Jesus shows up, and he completely undoes their fatalism, and he turns their worldview upside down. And this continues on. You have a uh, possibly a parable, but he does the, the teaching of the man, the uh, cost of discipleship, about the uh, building of the tower and the king who goes to war. And something you might think about when you read those is the question of, uh, are you okay with divine reversal? So basically, if he's speaking at the Pharisees and the rich and the ruling elite of the day, he's warning them that what they have now is going to be completely reversed at a later time in the future. And that's part of what we learn with the rich man and Lazarus. And so counting the cost means then, are you willing to be a disciple 
even if that means divine reversal. If you're a rich ruling elite, are you willing to have that reversed on you right now so that you'll be prepared for the time in the future in which those who are least will be made greatest? Are you prepared to pay the cost to experience divine reversal for the better as opposed to experiencing divine reversal for the worst, like the rich man in the parable of the, or the story of the rich man and Lazarus? So you see after that, Jesus is receiving sinners. And uh, if you ever see the word sinner in the gospel, uh, that is a technical term for irreligious Jews. It's not talking about every human being. And it's not a uh, Romans 3.23 reference where all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is actually a very technical term used for Jews who were not practicing Jews. They were not uh, keeping Torah. And so they had already been outcast and... uh, ostracized by the ruling elite, the Pharisees, the religious elite, and the rich. And so often, the, uh, the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame, they were also considered irreligious and sinners in that technical sense. And so Jesus is receiving just those kinds of people, and he's reversing their fortune. He's uh, turning their illness into health, and this is a foreshadowing of what he plans to do when he brings his kingdom in. He's already bringing it in among them by doing these things. So these people, they were castaways by the leaders. Those are the ones Jesus is uh, bringing into his kingdom. He's reversing their fortune. And that's the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost son, the parable of the lost sheep. That's what communicates that idea are those parables. And you have in Luke 15, uh, verses 24 and 32, in the parable of the lost son, it says, For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost has, and has been found. And they began to celebrate. So the father says the same thing in verse 32. He says, but we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. Uh, there are great marks of uh, what we call irony within the Gospels that we have these people whom Jesus is receiving. They are already experiencing a spiritual resurrection. And this is the priority in which the resurrection of life must happen. First, you are spiritually resurrected, and then you will be later bodily, physically resurrected. And there are consequences uh, to what happens in between, depending on whether or not you experience that first resurrection. And so that's in the story. The son of mine, he was dead. Now he has been brought back to life. Those are the irreligious Jews. Those are the sinners who have been cast away, coming back, and Jesus is giving them spiritual life. They're coming back to life. And they're going to be prepared for the final reversal, which happens at a time in the future. So these are all going to connect back with what we're going to look at with uh, Lazarus and the rich man. You have the parable of the unrighteous steward next. And this is the steward. He uh, actually has the heads up. Like the master has heard that he has been squandering his wealth. And the master gives him a warning and says... Uh, you are going to be uh, undone, like you're going to have nothing. And so the unrighteous steward, what he does is he says, well, I'm going to make some friends real fast then. So he takes all the debts of his master and he uh, gives them a discount on what they need to pay off. And so if you think about that in the context of the religious elite and how the Pharisees have gained this unrighteous wealth, and how they were hoarding it, and how they were uh, not rich in giving. Um, 
that is their warning parable, saying you should be like the, the, the shrewd steward. You should use what wealth you have gained already through unrighteousness, and you should start giving it out to the poor and the lame and the blind and the crippled, those who are coming to me who I am reversing their fortune for. And so divine reversal is coming. Give now while you still have it. And so you, that's a, giving the Pharisees a chance to, to get in line. And it says that after this, they were very angry because uh, they were lovers of wealth. Let's see. That's in chapter 16, verses 14. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things, and they were scoffing at him. And then they have this interesting uh, verse here that just seems out of, the no, out of nowhere. I mean, it doesn't like, seem to fit really with what's going on. It's verse 18. It's one verse, and it's a verse about... Uh, marriage and divorce. It says, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Now, what's that doing stuck right in the middle of all these parables about divine reversal and about these unrighteous, pharisaical, wealthy elite who are greedy and love money and can't serve God and money at the same time? What is that doing there? (laughs) How did that happen? Well, actually, uh, one theory that I tend to like is the theory that uh, perhaps some of these uh, elite were uh, getting married multiple times and finding justifying grounds to get divorced because every time they married, uh, what came with the wife? A dowry. Yeah, that's right, a dowry. And so uh, they're already being accused of gaining wealth in an unrighteous way. So that's probably part of how they got their unrighteous wealth. There's a whole slew of other things as well, like it says they robbed widows' households and all kinds of bad stuff. And so they've gotten rich through means of unrighteousness. I think that might be why that little verse about marriage and divorce is stuck in there concerning the unrighteous Pharisees and their love of money and how they may have been actually just trying to cash in as many dowries as they can. But, you know, who's in charge of writing the certificates of divorce, right? Well, they are. (laughs) So they can find their own excuses for doing it over and over again if they want. So then you have all that leading up to the rich man and Lazarus. And so I asked you at the beginning, you know, um, is this a parable or is it biographical? Is is it um, made up or is it a real story? Is it a narrative meant to be taken um, literally? And so if you hold to the parable view, part of what might make you think that way is that you have a whole bunch of parables that he just told, like back to back to back to back to back. And they're parables. There's not really a lot of dispute about them being parables. And so you come to this one, which is kind of the last one in a series of parables. You're like, well, maybe this is a parable too, because it kind of fits the structure here. And then also the story is similar in structure in the lesson that it teaches. The previous parables, they were about... uh, basically the unrighteous, ruly, wealthy elite and the, the suffering of the poor and crippled and the blind and the false worldview of fatalism and predestination and that kind of thing. So you might look at that and say, I think it's a parable. But if you take the uh, narrative view, this is a real story. This is biographical, if you will. Uh, one reason that has led many people to believe that, uh, especially a lot of the early church writers, is that this is the only story, if it is a parable, where somebody specific is named. Yeah, parables don't have people with names in them. They're just common enough daily experiences that people relate to it. And so 
you don't have this person or that person with a specific name. So we do have Lazarus. He is named, and, uh, but his name has a meaning, just like all names have a meaning. His name means uh, God helps or God has helped. Or God has helped me. So that's what Lazarus means. And interestingly enough, uh, there are some early manuscripts where the, the copiers of the manuscripts, they give a name to the rich man. Isn't that interesting? There's a manuscript called P75. It's from around 175 AD. It's one of the earliest New Testament manuscripts. It's an excellent piece of of apologetic evidence. And in that manuscript, it says that the rich man's name was uh, Nues. And they're not sure what that name means. The best guess is that it means nobody. Nobody. Isn't that interesting? Ironic, right? You have this guy who's wealthy, lives in luxury, wears purple like a king, and he has feasts every day, and he doesn't have enough to share the leftovers at his table with the poor at his gate. And here he is. He's actually going to be nobody. (laughs) And so his name possibly means nobody. You know, when the Bible was going from, the the New Testament was written in Greek, right? And after that, it was written in Latin. So it became translated into Latin. And so if you hear the Latin Vulgate, it's talking about the Bible of the Middle Ages. And in the Vulgate, the rich man, uh, the the word for rich man is actually one word, and it's the Latin word dives, dives. Or you may have heard a song about the rich man and Lazarus, and it uses the word dives, dives. It looks like the word dives, D-I-V-E-S. So dives. But it's the Latin word dives. And... uh, that's actually, it can be an adjective or it can be a proper noun. It can be a proper name. And so when the Latin Vulgate was written, people took it not to be as uh, an adjective describing him, but actually that's his name. That's his proper name. It's like the English name Richard. It means one who is rich. And so that's what they thought Dives was, is that that's his name. This is the story of Lazarus and Dives. And so if you ever hear that Dives or, or Dives is maybe how you hear it pronounced, that's what it's referring to. And another thing that people say, well, this is a real story, it's narrative, it's biographical, is because it does not draw on daily common experiences. I mean, uh, you, you will die, there will be an afterlife you experience, but you haven't experienced it yet. And so that's one thing where it deviates quite a bit from what we would normally call a parable. So uh, just, a, just out of curiosity, you know, I'm not going to throw rocks at you either way, but if you... <laughs> If you think the rich man and uh, Lazarus, or, or Lazarus and Dives, is a, is a parable, it's, just, it's made up to teach a lesson, uh, raise your hand. I just want to take a survey. Okay? That's fine. You got the right to be wrong. That's all right. It's no big deal. Uh, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. There are good reasons to think that. I mean, it's, a good, it's, a, it's a strong view. Uh, who thinks it's a narrative? It's a biographical view. Like, this is a real, these are real people, and this, this really happened. Now, most of us in here. Well, most of the people in the early church thought the same thing, and they were pretty fascinated with this story because it's one of the few places you get some insight, a little window into the life to come, the in-between time. Now, uh, let's go ahead and put up the the first slide. Well, I'll get my clicker out. Here we go. I love being a guest preacher. I can just come and dump information on you and say, see you later. (laughs) So, So here we go. We need to talk a little bit about ancient cosmology because they have this weird place where the rich man is already in this place. It's not spoken of future. Like, it is, it, it is happening. Uh, Lazarus is there. It is happening. 
It's a place where they're separated. They can't get to each other, but somehow they can see each other. And the rich man seems to be under the assumption that Lazarus can get him some water. That's pretty interesting. So the first thing we need to think about is ancient cosmology and the Bible. When I say cosmology, what I mean is the way they saw the universe, you know, because they weren't talking about light years or galaxies or anything like that. Uh, Their view of how they saw the universe was really just uh, three tiers. It was heaven and earth and under the earth. So what is this scene that Jesus paints for his hearers? And what would the original audience... um, have as far as like a hook to hang that on would they know what jesus was talking about would they be familiar with the descriptions that he gives what would be the backdrop then that they would already have when jesus says that and what kind of impact would that have so this is not again the future it's not the resurrection and it's not the final judgment think about it the rich man says send someone to my brothers so they can repent that's not the resurrection that's not the final judgment And Abraham says, well, they won't believe even if someone rises from the dead. So again, it's not yet the resurrection, not yet the final judgment. So it is actually something happening then and there as soon as they die. This is a real place they go to that they would be familiar with. So there's heaven and earth and under the earth. That's a three-tiered cosmology. This is common to all of the ancient Near East. And the heavenly realm, which is the top realm, that's the realm for the gods or the heavenly host. Uh, you know, the Bible talks about gods. It talks about heavenly hosts. And when it says that, you, don't, you shouldn't think creators. They're not creators of anything. Only Yahweh is the most high God. He's the creator God. He is supreme. No other God is like Yahweh. He is the only eternal God with no beginning. He's the prime of creation. But there are these other gods. If it makes you feel better, just think of them as angels. You know, they're just, they're just divine beings. And there are some weird beings out there, right? Seraphim, uh, Keruvim, like those are... Strange-looking creatures that we hear about sometimes in the Bible. But that's the realm that they dwell in, is that top tier. And that top tier has levels to it. And so there was the sky, that was heaven. There was where the stars and the sun and the moon dwell, that was also heaven. And then there was above the waters, and that was also heaven. That's where the throne of God is. And so this is the way they viewed the universe and how God created everything. And then there was uh, the earthly realm, And that was the realm for the humans. And so when God created the earthly realm, he shows up in Genesis 1-1, and there's nothing but water and darkness, and it's chaos. And he comes in, and he hovers over the waters, and he brings order to it. And he starts separating things and containing them and making uh, order out of chaos. And so how does he contain and separate water from water? This is how they imagined it. They had a... uh, a dome above the earth that separated the waters above from the waters below. There are verses in the Bible that talk about God's heavenly temple uh, set upon the, the waters of heaven, on the pillars of heaven. And then under that is the earthly realm that God took land out from the water and put together and separated from the waters under heaven. And that's for the humans, for uh, people. And then under the earth is the underworld. It's the netherworld. It's the realm of disembodied spirits. This is where you go when you die. And that's pretty much the only way you can go there. You just you die, and that's where your spirit is taken. For them, you have to remember, when we think of spiritual and physical, it wasn't as separate as maybe we might think about it today. And so there were actually locations on earth that they would call gates to the underworld. And the Hebrew word for the underworld is Sheol, 
And the Hebrew word, or the Greek word for the underworld is Hades. And so uh, if you remember when Jesus gets to uh, Caesarea Philippi and he goes up on the plateau and says, the gates of Hades won't overcome my church. Well, there actually was a cave, a grotto is what they call it, that they called Pan's Grotto. And Pan is the little like devil demon-like creature that you used to seeing in cartoons with the like horns and the goat body. He's a satyr, half goat, half human. Well, they believe that was one of the many openings that if you go into, you will end up in the underworld and you will not come back. So basically there are gates that keep you locked in down there and you can't get out. And so Jesus says, I actually have the keys to those. And you can come out if I let you out. <laughs> and so that was the, the hope of both Old Testament and New Testament saints. And you think about... Um, David, right? When David wrote the psalm, you will not abandon my soul to Hades. Um, in the Hebrew, Sheol, right? So that is taken by uh, Peter on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 to talk about Jesus and the resurrection because he says, well, that didn't quite happen to David, did it? <laughs> he didn't really ascend out of Hades into heaven. And that's, that's what he says, Acts chapter 2. Let's see. Uh, you're familiar with Acts 2. It says, He looked and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we're all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, that's in heaven, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured forth that which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven. You see that? It was not David who ascended into heaven. David's not in heaven. That doesn't mean David's in hell. Sheol is not hell. Hades is not hell. It's the underworld. It's a realm of disembodied spirits, and technically there are distinctive places within that realm that are separate from one another. You think of it as neighborhoods. There are good neighborhoods and there are bad neighborhoods. Good people go to good neighborhoods. Bad people go to bad neighborhoods. There's even this uh, super scary place called the pit, and it's like the deepest crevice and recess of the underworld um, in Greek, it's called uh, Tartarao or Tartarus, and that's actually like a supermax spirit prison <laughs> where, where they put evil angels. You talk about Jude and Second Peter uh, 2, where it talks about angels imprisoned in chains of gloomy darkness. It talks about the abyss in those books. That's, they knew what that was. That, they knew where that was and what that was in their cosmology. And so I think that's pretty interesting. It's interesting stuff. Um, so there's heaven, there's earth, there's under the earth. And under the earth, uh, there's also water. You see in the diagram, there's like water all around, basically. And both a watery place and uh, a dusty place. Uh, Job 26.5 says it's below the waters. Uh, Jonah 2.6. Um, I kind of think Jonah died, by the way, when he says this, and that Jonah was brought back to life. And when he talks about being rescued from Sheol, rescued from the pit, like that's underworld language, that's disembodied spirit language. And so uh, Jonah 2.6 talks about the watery pit, which is the base of all the mountains. And so this just, it was the expected place for the dead. It was David's hope that he wouldn't be there forever. And um, it, it was something that people knew they were going to, though. And there were a few people in the Old Testament that they believed actually made it to heaven. Now, there is a good place in, in Sheol that they called Abraham's bosom. <laughs> Sometimes they called paradise. But there are a few people in the Old Testament who made it to heaven. 
but they didn't die. Can you think of somebody who didn't die and just went straight to heaven? Enoch. Yeah, yeah. Who else? Elijah. That's right. See, I love preaching the Sunday night crowds. You just, boom, you got it. That's right. In fact, there's Enoch, there's Elijah, and there might be one more. So uh, if you think about Moses, Moses, uh, he did die. But if you look in Deuteronomy 34, verses 5 through 7, it says, When he died, he was 120, and his uh, eyes had not dimmed, and his strength had not abated. Like, he was still a strong, like, young-looking guy. And so something had changed in his body, right? You don't just walk into the presence of God, come back all shiny-faced, and, like, you aren't, like, physically changed by that. And so the idea is that he was physically changed by that, and that God did kill him on Mount Nebo, but then God maybe resurrected him after that. And we sort of, it's, it's, it's guesswork. I'm not saying for sure, but it's just a guesswork. It's a postulation because, remember that weird verse in the book of Jude? It says the devil arguing with uh, uh, the angel Michael about the body of Moses. What are you arguing about a dead man's body for, right? There's something weird going on there. And uh, in Second Peter, it talks about how we become partakers of the divine nature according to his great and magnificent promises and you know, Peter's actually, he's looking forward to the resurrection because he says, I'm, I'm going to shed this earthly tabernacle. Uh, he says that in verses 14, and then in 16 through 18, he's like, I know that this promise is sure because I've actually seen it with my eyes. Which is like, well, what kind of resurrected body would Peter have seen with his eyes? <laughs> the transfiguration, that's right. That's when he says, we heard the divine voice come out of the sky saying, this is my son whom I am well pleased, listen to him. Who showed up with Jesus at the transfiguration? Moses and Elijah, that's right. So Elijah was already ascended into heaven, and that's why I think Moses was also resurrected and given his new body, and that he is in heaven. But again, in the Old Testament, very few people in heaven, everybody else waiting in, if they're righteous in a nice place in the underworld until the resurrection, until the final judgment. And that's what I think we see here in the story with the man and Lazarus, is that we have... This is the best picture, I thought, the best interpretive, you know, picture. If you look on the left, uh, you have, you know, flames, and it looks like there are these two mountains, and the mountains are separated, but they can see each other, and you see the rich man uh, leaning down, looking up at Abraham and Lazarus, and Lazarus' mountain that he's on is a nice mountain, has light, and there's water, and there's like a river that comes down it. It's like a mountain garden. Well, those are all very common themes and things that people wrote about and talked about, uh, not only hinted at in the Old Testament, but in lots and lots of things written in what's called the Second Temple Era, which is between 400 B.C. and 100 A.D. And sometimes we call it the intertestamental period. And so in those writings, there was a lot of things written that people in the day of Jesus knew about, they read, and it was, some of it was wildly popular. And so there was a book that was wildly popular during the days of Jesus in the first century church, and it was a book called First Enoch. <laughs> and Jude thought this book was so popular that he felt okay with quoting it. And so when Jude quotes from the book of Enoch, uh, he's assuming that his audience knows about the book and that they're going to get his point, that the verse he quotes in Jude is that one day all of God's holy ones are going to come down and they're going to issue judgment upon the ungodly. And that was something that they were to look forward to because it was a reversal. It was the ultimate divine reversal, the hope to which they were looking for. And so uh, some descriptions of that, and you can see, especially in First Enoch chapter 22 and chapter 103. And uh, so we have this theme then that runs through Luke 14 through 16, 
And we have this thing about wealth and poverty and fatalism and why you're rich and why you're poor. You remember in uh, the Gospel of John, I know it's not Luke, but in John 9, it says that uh, there was a blind man. And when Jesus walks by, his disciples asked, why was this man born blind? Is it because he sinned or because his parents sinned? What a question to ask, right? And, and what a great set of answers to, to have. Was it this or this? But that goes right in line with the fatalistic predestination worldview that they were in the midst of. And Jesus came to show you that that is not the way it works. That is not the way God has set up the universe. That is not the way the world works. And in fact, he says, I have come so that I may reverse what has been done to this man, that the works of God may be shown in him. And so what they viewed concerning wealth and poverty and how things were going to be reversed um, is kind of at the heart of this whole section between Luke 14 through 16 and in the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And so their idea was, unless you're a well, I guess as a Christian, uh, if you're martyred, you would go straight to heaven. There are the martyrs under the altar in heaven, Revelation uh, 5 and 6. And uh, I think that's what Paul means when he says, I don't know what's better, to stay here? There's more fruitful labor for me. This is in the book of Philippians. More fruitful labor for me, or if I die and go be with the Lord. Well, when Paul said he's going to die, he didn't mean I'm getting old <laughs> and I'm going to naturally die of old age. He meant that I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be killed for the cause of Christ. So there was this belief in Christianity that martyrs uh, don't go to the nice place in Sheol. They get a better reward of going straight to heaven with their new bodies. And that might be what's hinted at in Revelation when the martyrs are given their new clothing. Because clothing is pretty typical language talking about your, your body. And so you shed the old tabernacle, the old clothing. You get new clothing, heavenly clothing, heavenly um, bodies. And so uh, Paul, I think, expected to be martyred and expected to go straight to heaven. Uh, and so that kind of makes sense out of some crazy things you hear about in the first and second century of Christianity during times of intense persecution where you have Christians out in the middle of nowhere sort of living in monasteries, and they would hear about persecution happening in the city, and they'd come to the city for the purpose of being martyred. Now, what kind, what would in, what kind of incentive <laughs> would cause somebody to walk straight into martyrdom. Well, the incentive of a greater reward in the afterlife. To get to rule and reign right now with Christ in heaven, with your new body, until the resurrection, until the day of judgment, when the ultimate divine reversal is delivered. So, uh, I, I like being the guest preacher. Just information, here you go, see you later. I, I will make a, a, a small application for today. So, the question really was, I think, in this section of scripture and in the parable and in the story of the rich man Lazarus is, do you have a reverning, a yearning of divine reversal? If you're poor, if you're crippled, if you're lame, uh, and people uh, who were rich and wealthy were telling you that that's your lot in life, that's your fate, boy, you would have a strong yearning for divine reversal and to show Jesus, who can already reverse that right now, begin the process with the hope of a greater reversal to come, that would be good news, <laughs> that, the reversal of fate. So if you were rich, though, and you were wealthy, and you were told that you need to take that and use it, uh, not on yourself, not be lovers of money, but to be uh, generous, uh, then that might, especially if you're greedy and lovers of money, that would, might sound like bad news. 
This is, this is a bad guy spreading a bad message, and we should, we should take him out. So here's the question you know, today. Do we yearn for divine reversal? Well, think about the state of the world. Christianity has been here for a couple thousand years. And uh, you look at the world, and there are pockets where you see the church growing, and then there are pockets where you see good things happening in the world, but then there are also pockets where you see bad things happening in the world. And every now and then there's some sense of hopelessness where it's just like, how come the battle between good and evil just keeps going back and forth, back and forth, generation after generation, and all over the world? Isn't there like an internal like yearning that says, when will this be over? <laughs> when will this be set right? When will the forces of darkness actually be extinguished for good so that we don't have this battle anymore? Well, that is the divine reversal that is going to come. That's the hope that they hung on to. That's a core of the gospel message. And that is something they looked forward to and anticipated needing to prepare for even before the resurrection, before the judgment, because that intermediary state, whether you're on the side of the chasm of torment or the side of the chasm of uh, comfort and Abraham's bosom by his side, uh, it made a difference on uh, how you received Jesus right now. So that was a powerful message to them, that they were not in the hands of faith, but they were in the hands of Jesus depending on whether they would hear him or not. And if they would hear the prophets, if they would hear Moses and the prophets, then they would hear Jesus, and they wouldn't need uh, to fear fate or fatalism or anything or out being outcast by the Pharisees or anything like that. So uh, time for a couple questions. Go ahead. Uh, I think Melchizedek is some sort of uh, heavenly, like, divine figure already. I don't think he was human. Good question. I could be wrong, too. <laughs> so it's like one of those nobody knows questions, but yeah. Uh, any other questions? All right. Well, now that I've taken a and I've stuck it inside your head, and I've swirled it around. I'll let you go, and I'll, I'll give you some rest, and maybe uh, you can do some research on your own, and feel free to, if you have any questions or any problems with anything I've said at all, you just take your question, and you bring it to Toby, and he's going to take care of that. And uh, you're dismissed, if there's a song. There you go. You are invited, if you have any need also, to come and uh, make your need known. Not used to giving an invitation. <laughs>